0: Hi, I'm Eris Schneeggen, the author of Waiting for Lipschitz at Chateau Marmont, and I'm with Adam Novak, the author of Take Fountain. Hello, Adam.
1: Good morning, Iris.
0: It's quite a coincidence we should be interviewing one another. Your book, Take Fountain, is about a powerful Hollywood type head of the story department at a major agency. He's discussing the ins and outs of the industry with a not-so-successful screenwriter who's teaching at the College of the Canyon. The conversation is for a podcast, just like we're doing now, the teacher's conducting for his class, and there's a disquieting undertone to the conversation that becomes more and more ominous as the book progresses. Mine is about a Hollywood screenwriter who goes from riches to rags, and decides to move to Fresno, of all places, only to get a last-minute text from a producer whom he sent a script to nine months before asking for a lunch date at the Chateau Marmont. And we're both represented by the same wonderful press, Rare Bird. And since this is my channel, I'm going to start by asking you a most banal yet unavoidable question. What compelled you to write this book, and what's behind the title, Take Fountains?
1: Like you said, the irony is not lost on me that having written a novel about a podcast, that we are actually having a podcast talking yeah. about our screenwriters. Um, what I want to tell you about Take Fountain is that there are two stories. Not only is Take Fountain one of the great quotes about the city of Los Angeles, which you and I, both wrote about and I think your novel is as much about Los Angeles as it is about the business but Sam Kinison legendary stand-up comedian was at the comedy store and he would tell his audience don't drive drunk but if you do take that (laughs) you're right and as we know, you know, uh, in our 20s and 30s, living in Los Angeles in the 90s, Fountain Avenue runs parallel to La Cienega and Sunset goes from basically through West Hollywood. And it's the fastest way to kind of get from one part of the city to the other. And um, but what people really know, Kick Fountain from is Betty Davis, was on Johnny Carson. And end of her life, she's smoking. And this is a clip that's on YouTube and I'd heard about it, but I'd forgotten about it, uh, that Johnny Carson said to Betty Davis, Betty, you're a legend. You've been in this business forever. Do you have any advice for an aspiring actress? What's the best way to get into Hollywood? And Betty Davis said, take something. I
0: love it. So
1: I confess to you that I had the title first and I saw it on a a bumper sticker in a car, and I said, that's my second novel. And so when I had the title first, it took a long time before inspiration hit. uh, One of the films that I, I would put on a desert island with me is The Blair Witch Project, and I wanted to do something different from my first novel, and I wanted to play with the form and I wanted to do not a found footage movie, but I wanted to do a found pages novel. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. taking taking the aspirational nature of Take Fountain, not the Sam Kinison, which is avoiding a DUI, but Betty Davis saying, "What's the best way to get into Hollywood?" I then realized uh, my Eureka of doing a, a, a podcast between a screenwriter is now teaching screenwriting in a community college and a script reader. And their conversation I thought would be not just illuminating about the movie business, but also what if there was an agenda at work here? And then I thought of, well, two men enter this room, only one leaves. And then I thought, okay, now I'm on to something. And then when I wrote this, I realized that it had to have a context. And so, when I was done, I actually wrote the first page which said that this is a transcript of a podcast that was stolen right. from, from an right. evidence room of a closed, oh, sorry, an open murder investigation. I was fortunate enough to actually get it published.
0: You know, some, some things occur in uh, real life that are so... <clears throat> true to make believe that it just makes you shake your head but when I was uh, uh, living in the Hollywood Hills I had a club in West Hollywood, Luna Park I was a partner in that club and I used to take Fountain for the pre- very precise reasons that you're mentioning and it, I was always at least three martinis deep coming back and never once saw a cop so I can testify to that I don't think it's like that anymore in LA but those were the days Mm -hmm. Um, I want to ask you about, you know, both of our books are about Hollywood. And your first book, The Non-Pro, was also about Hollywood. And I was thinking, I I think I have the answer for myself, but I'm wondering what your uh, take on this is. Is there something about Hollywood that mirrors in an exaggerated way the reality of the rest of society? Maybe like the King's Court and Shakespeare's plays reflected in a larger-than-life way the reality of the Commoders attending his plays?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I I would compare uh, the business to sort of uh, the Coliseum, you know, at the height of Caligula's reign, where you have these masses of bloodthirsty crowds and cheering on people's deaths and the business... um, which, when you live in Los Angeles, you can't avoid it. You know, uh, um, uh, we all know people who have succeeded wildly and failed miserably, and pick up, pick up themselves and try again. And uh, I've, I've seen, uh, I've lost friends, and I've seen marriages fail. Uh, not that I'm blaming the business, but this is a city that basically runs uh, largely on. Um, the entertainment business, and all of it's sort of like a gold rush. You know, the people making the jeans have an interest in the the miners and the gold and the way that the gold is made. And uh, In Non-Pro, I sort of compared one character, to another character, that basically all we ever talked about in this town, it could be anything. It could be plumbing. You're a plumber? I'm I'm a plumber. I saw some great pipes last night at the Grove. All we care about is when we wake up and think about what movie did you see or now, you know, maybe what TV show uh, you binge watched uh, over the weekend and didn't leave your, your house. You know, maybe why we're not, you know, getting caught for DUIs anymore is because, you know, we're binge watching something on Netflix and we're not leaving the house.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true enough. You know, there was a,
1: there was a, you, you just made me think of, uh, uh do you remember that bar called the gem on oh, Melrose and Melrose and the Brea, the gem was a bar that I used to go to, but I lived around the corner. And so I would go to the gem and I would get these martini glasses that I liked and I would steal them and I'd shove them in my an overcoat and I would leave that bar clinking.
0: Excuse I me, excuse
1: it. me. And so I, my, my my kitchen was filled with stolen martini glasses from the <laughs> gems because I didn't have to take Fountain. I, I walked to this bar. That
0: wow, was a good time. Well, what with all the hullabaloo, the glitz, the egos, the glamour, not to mention the traffic, I'm curious. Do you find Hollywood a hospitable place for the crafting of a novel, something that takes such, you know, Contain fire and patience,
1: well, I mean, I think you wrote about it in such a uh, beautiful, subtle way that I, I have to tell you that when I was reading your book, I felt that it was it captured uh, not so much the desperation but the sort of aspirational uh, uh, nature of the business in the city it's like your screenwriter is about to go to Fresno and he's sucking on the pipe of maybe. Yeah. That's what drives a lot of people I know or have known. And he's, you know, just about to put the, the, the the gas in his car and drive up to Fresno and he gets that text messages. And so he's hanging out at the chateau, uh, waiting for this producer and I just thought you threaded the needle so perfectly about without being too venal and, you know, over the top, you know, and yet you captured that essence, like a a scent of desperation. And you, you know, you wrote about Fresno, I thought, as beautifully, you know, the way you describe a lunch in Santa Monica with these desperados who are salivating at the thought of sharing a room with a successful producer Lipschitz, who's you know, your screenwriter is meeting with. So I, I was quite taken with your take on the business and the city. Well, it's
0: funny because I was, you know, I did write just because I was there and between novels, I would try my hand at screenplays and I did write a few and, uh, you know, got where most people get people looking at it, saying they're interested and going nowhere. But I was never really in Hollywood, though. I lived right in the middle of it. I lived in uh, I lived in the hills for a couple of years and then in Hancock Park area for 24, 25 years but i always i was surrounded by um people in the industry and you know just listened to them a lot so most of my book um is just listening to other people's stories but the reason i asked you the question about you know what with the hullabaloo of uh, hollywood do you find it a hostile place for crafting a novel was because I don't think I could have written Lipschitz if I were still in L.A. I had -hmm. moved to Fresno. um, It was here about six months before I began writing the book. So for me, it would have been very difficult to write this book, I believe, if I'd have stayed in L.A.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you're very fortunate because uh, just like you, you know, physically moved yourself to Fresno, your book is immersive. I mean, I felt like I was you know, dropped into the farm with your screenwriter, Stranger in a Strange Land, and, you know, like you, probably adapting to the total difference in uh, uh, your view. Um, You know, you looked around, and uh, there's more fruits and vegetables. You know, this is not a farmer's market on Sunday afternoon. This is every day. And I thought, that, thought that, that, you may have done yourself you know, a terrific favor by uh, not just getting out of L.A. and and, and changing uh, your locale and lifestyle, but it, it absolutely produced a terrific novel.
0: Well, I sure appreciate your praise for someone who's been in the neighborhood, in the hood, in the city, and around the industry for as long as you have. That's... Uh Very high praise and very uh, meaningful and touching to me. Um, You know, I'm wondering about your book has such a uh, uh, terrific writing, a real playful structure, and a pretty clever plot. Uh, But it also kind of seems to me that you're looking to do more than entertain here. Um, Maybe even working out some personal Hollywood demons. Mm. Um, That might be a little too... too, uh, close to the bone of question, but I wonder if you'd entertain answering it.
1: Sure. I had this conversation with my best friend the other night when I told him that you and I were going to be having a podcast. And he laughed and said, you're doing a podcast? And he said, because he had read Take Time, but he hadn't read your book about screenwriter, And he said, I bet you that your screenwriter can murder his screenwriter." (laughs) And I said, well, that's probably true. And then he got into this question of like, you know, why uh, take Fountain like you did? And and he said, you know, what's interesting to me, he said, is that in your first novel, uh, the non-pro, you know, it, it, it also has a murder in it. And I said, yeah, I had myself murdered. And he said, I didn't know that. I said, yeah, I, I, I had never written a novel before. In my first chapter, the first novel I ever wrote, I decided to have myself murdered and write about my funeral. And so I wrote in prose what people said about me and who would want me dead. And that became the sort of narrative drive of the first novel. Take Fountain. There was an experience where uh, the relationship between a screenwriter and a script reader is so uh, critical, not just to the business, but you know, one literally cannot function without the other. And I thought, that's a dynamic I'd like to have them tell the world their point of view about reading scripts writing scripts and to me that was uh, the most fun is listening to larry the reader and listening to dollars talk to this thing wrote itself
0: yeah it has that feel for sure um it has a um very natural pace to it um the the conversation between the two sounds so authentic to me. Um, I would agree with that. But my question was your personal demons mm-hmm. are there, you know, cause I feel like I've worked out my demons with actually this is my second book on LA. The first was this angelic land, which was set during the 1992 LA riots. And then of course, the, the newest one, Lipschitz, but how about your personal demons?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, know, I don't know anyone who doesn't have a sort of love-hate relationship. We love the movie business and yet there are people in our lives who upset us or people who are hurt, wounded by their behavior in this business. And so, I wanted to write about uh, what you would do to sort of, if you had the chance to really exact revenge on someone. I hear you. Nothing nothing more personal other than uh, knowing many people, uh, which is kind of sad that I've known people who have taken their own lives uh, uh, over their own failure. And I've known people who have wanted to kill someone and instead acted out in different ways. But I just wish they had, you know, chosen a different path. And so for me, the only personal demons was uh, I could relate to someone being uh, so angry and I could relate to somebody actually being so thoughtless towards someone that they don't realize they are walking into their own funeral when they agree to do this podcast. You know, it's, um,
0: I had a similar, um, very personal kind of loss that, that, I don't know. I wouldn't say turned me away from LA, but it certainly had me looking elsewhere to live. Mm -hmm. Um, a neighbor friend of mine, 30 year old kid who was in the, uh, He was a manager of a club in Los Angeles and wonderful kid, um, smart, attractive, um, pretty serious. He got in some deep trouble with some um, entertainment types, Hollywood types in the bar and ended up um, committing suicide. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: I had two girls living in. uh, He was just, you know, my neighbor. He was just down the block and I had two kids who were growing up in L.A., and I had this kind of insight that, you know, Hollywood killed him. And if he'd have been elsewhere, he probably wouldn't have had this pressure to succeed, this ambition to look good all the time plaguing him. And so I think that I I can really relate to what you're saying. It wasn't what um, L.A. did to me because L.A. treated me pretty well. Mm-hmm. But just looking around and seeing the, uh, what was going on about me, I think, pushed me into this book when I
1: left. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you talk about your, your, your earlier novels. Uh, uh, there's a difference between failed novelist and published author. How did you, find out that your first novel was being published and was it difficult? Did you suffer years of rejection letters or did you happen to be accepted, you know, early and quickly? How did how did that roll for you? Well, I had
0: a very unusual trajectory, quite um, unconventional. I graduated with a uh, under my undergraduate degree was in psychology and in English, and I decided that I didn't want to um, over cerebralize writing, <clears throat> so I decided to do graduate work in psychology, and I was um, did a PhD um, at Claremont. But at the tail end of my um, uh, dissertation, I began my first novel. This is when I was at like 27 and, um, was writing during the day I was writing my dissertation and at night I was writing a novel and, um, I finished that book and, um, submitted it to a agent and, uh, got back the typical kind of rejection letters that happened for another, uh, 10 years. How long? Um, I wrote ten years. Ten years. I wrote. Yeah, I wrote three novels. Um, the third was published, but I never found an agent. To this day, I may be one of the only novelists who's still up and running <laughs> and getting some traction. Who doesn't have an agent?
1: That um, makes two I of had, us. Yeah. Me neither. Well, and and it's yeah, one of these well, things about the, this sort of travels of a novelist is that when you don't have an agent and you're up to your own devices to uh, find a publisher and navigate the rejection letters, I got rejection letters to my query letters.
0: Oh, it's a pretty
1: brutal business. Um, it's
0: as brutal, if not more brutal than Hollywood to be frank. I
1: agree. I agree. Um, because I mean, the, 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 the rejection, the rejection is so, uh, existential, it's so total. how can you not uh, take it as uh, this will never happen?
0: And you're in it for a year, two years, some case even three years.
1: yeah and, you know
0: I mean you, you, you know so you' you're deep into it and but I was lucky um, because um, heyday a really wonderful press out of Berkeley that does books on California. Um, was the publisher of my first novel, Bloodvine, and they just accepted it. And then they, you know, they accepted my second novel, um, River Big. Both those novels are set in the uh, Fresno area and about a farming family um, and uh, based roughly upon my father's life and uh, his story as a young man. And uh, um, then, um, you know, then I had published this Angelic Land, and that was published by my own publishing company. And sure. then I was lucky enough to you know convince Tyson and his wonderful crew to take uh, uh, Lipschitz. Mm-hmm. so it's it's it was it's been a very frustrating, at times uh, road for me as a mm-hmm. writer, um, but it, but also you know with not without its great joys and and said that. You know, my, the, my books have been well-received and well-reviewed. For whatever reason, even though I haven't had a lot of, um, uh, you know, help along the way with a- agents and the like, you know, did, I've done pretty well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel, I feel incredibly fortunate. Just getting the first one was, you know, three years of writing and five years of trying to get read and I was I was so lucky that I found a mystery press in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> After years of rejection, and when I got the email that he uh, uh, Scott Schmidt, the publisher, wanted to publish non-pro, uh, and gave me a number to call to discuss the contract, I I literally hung up the phone and dropped to the floor and and burst into tears. <laughs> Yeah, remember. And then I then I, then, then I called Scott Schmidt in Portland, Oregon, Salvo Press, and he answered the phone himself. And I said, Mr. Schmidt, you're real. He said, of course I'm real. I've been publishing books for 15 years. What do you mean, of course I'm real? He said, I thought you were going to charge me to publish my first novel. And he goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to you know, send you a contract. And uh, that's it. And I said, so... Uh, What's the, the uh, editorial process like at Salvo? He goes, What do you mean, editorial? I like your book. I'm going to publish it. sending you a contract. And I hung up the phone, and I was suddenly laughing because I had heard two words that a writer never hears in Hollywood no notes. Mm. Mm. Wow. So, what they, what they published was what I wrote. And I thought wow, this would never happen. This would never, never happen again. So to follow it up with uh, "Take Fountain" and to uh, hear you praise it, and you know, I feel like Sally Field. Wow. Amazing.
0: There's a lot of Amazing. there's a lot of pleasures. There's a lot of pleasures to your book, honestly. But for me, in particular, was your. Regular referencing of LA bars and clubs and eateries that I also found myself um, in in the 80s and all through the 90s, even. I don't know, maybe it's just nostalgia, nostalgia, but setting aside the horrors of the 1992 riots, or maybe not. You know, was LA a wonderful place to live then, or is it just me?
1: Well, I loved, I I had a great time during the riots. I mean, I had a house in Melrose with a pool table and every night was a party and we couldn't go out. Remember, there was a curfew and the city's on fire and you turn on the TV and reporters were standing in front of Circuit City while there was looting going on in the background. You know, right? cars would drive by with couches tied to the roofs of the cars and the newscaster would be saying, there's no police anywhere. I'm at Sunset in La Brea, and the Circuit City is being looted. Uh, It it was a wild time. Uh, um, I think something happened. Uh, Maybe you get older, and you don't necessarily go out as much, but uh, I went out every night for a decade. Particularly to this one bar in Silver Lake, which I wrote about in Non-Pro, and uh, is a, a cop a cop bar called the Shortstop on Sunset, and didn't have didn't even have a sign out front. You know, three clubs three clubs didn't have a yeah. sign out front. You know, the Club room and, yeah. on Cahuenga. Yeah. If it, if it, if there was signage, we didn't go into it. It didn't. There was no sign. That's where that's where you'd find us. And it never be it would be like a, a scene out of that movie Swingers. You know, there'd be a caravan of cars following each other, going from bar to bar, and that would be going up the hills to a party. Yep. Coming home, you know. And I remember I, I gave a toast when my best friend got married, and I said to him, you know, when we lived together and we go to all those bars in L.A. in the nineties, he said, you know, I would you would you would go home with uh, you know. Different girl every night, and I said I would wake up every morning with a different pizza box in my bed. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, so that's well, my memory. I,
0: yeah, i i had this I had a sense, and you're right. You know, just maybe getting older, not having to, you know, in my case, having kids and settling down. But LA, you can get around. It wasn't there wasn't traffic you know, 24 seven and housing was not that expensive and there weren't so many clubs that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't count them. There were, you know, they were there and they were fun and people hung out, but it wasn't as though, you know, you have to negotiate for hours to find a place to squeeze into mm-hmm. and um, it just seemed a lot more hospitable place for, you know, people who were single and and had some sort of source of income and mm-hmm. wanted to have a fun time and rub elbows.
1: Mm-hmm. Sounds like one of us is either going to write an entire novel about uh, 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 Bacchanalia in the 90s, or at least a, a throwaway paragraph memory of L.A. Yeah. You know, one of us was going to beat the other to the punch and write about what I'm reminiscing about right now because it was the greatest time of my life. I mean, the 90s for an entire decade was such a period of uh, blind joy for me. It really, I, it wasn't a struggle. It was fun. And um, I just, when I sat down to write non-pro, that was sort of, to me, the away from the partying and into a much more serious decision to sort of, how was I going to spend my time? Who was I? What was I interested in doing with my life?
0: Yeah. I like that blind joy. I can I can relate to that.
1: Yeah. Now, if if, if you got a phone call from the business saying, uh, meet me at the Chateau Mamon, I want to talk about adapting you know, your book, waiting for Lipschitz, is there a director or a star you would kind of imagine or pray would want to do your book? Well, you know, I've had a few, before I
0: answer that question, I have to tell you, I've had a few people tell me that it would make a terrific screenplay, but I don't, you know, it's hard for me to see. I think screenplay writing is such an art form in itself, and it takes a certain kind of brain to squeeze the essence out of a novel. So even though I can't see it that clearly, I've had other people tell me that it would. Because yeah. as you know, the book is an interior monologue, mostly. Yeah. It's occurring in the mind of the narrator who's sitting in one place. Well, he's first at the bar, and then he moves to a table at the chateau. Yeah. And of course, there's flashbacks <clears throat> To his visit with um, his friend in Fresno, a novelist who has exiled himself to a farm uh, not quite in Fresno, in a place called Madeira, and those flashbacks take us to his farmhouse, his, um, mm-hmm. um, the Fulton Mall in Fresno, most importantly Forestier's underground gardens,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, back and forth in his head between the Central Valley and l a so um, it's 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 mostly occurring with you know with him sitting there, with yeah. that said, you know I think that you know woody i mean if 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 I were to have anybody who I could dream would look at it, it would be Woody Allen just because of his ambivalence toward if not contempt for Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know, but realistically. Um, you know, someone like I think someone like uh Steve Buscemi or maybe Sophia Coppola on the mm-hmm. director's end. Mm-hmm. Um you know, someone who's kind of got two directors that have an edgy feel to them, though Buscemi's mostly T V. Um, you know, and on the on the star end, I don't know, it could be anywhere from Mark Rufflow maybe to Jude Law would play the narrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are those are that's who I kind of imagine yeah. might be right for this project. What, are, what do you have any thoughts about it after reading it?
1: Well, I just thought it was you know something that a filmmaker could take your book and bring the sort of distance that you don't have. I mean, it would be something that an auteur might be able to do with your book. What? Sophia Coppola did with her movie Somewhere which had that actor reconnecting with his, do- his daughter at the chateau but then yeah. I thought the best part of, of, of your book is that you never invented a plot you know terrorists don't take over the hotel and your screenwriter suddenly has to be this hero You know, you never invent characters. I just thought that the people who you wrote about, you know, kept it very grounded, very uh, real. And that doesn't always lend itself necessarily to be a movie. It doesn't have to be a movie. But because it is so interior, and because it, it does jump around between Fresno and the Chateau, that might be attractive to a filmmaker, you know. Ah, So, to me, I thought the book was something that if an auteur wanted to sort of make a a film and something about this book spoke to him or her, there's always a possibility, you know. Um, Interesting. I I, I always think of um, the novelist John O'Brien when he wrote Leaving Las Vegas. I knew him. I met him at a dinner party and he gave me the manuscript of Leaving Las Vegas, which had a profound wow. impact on my life, which I think made at least try to write a novel. And um, he killed himself. And he was a terrible alcoholic and, and, and conflicted guy. But when he was still living, uh, he had said that Hollywood had options his novel, Leaving Las Vegas, and that he was so worried that they were going to give it a happy ending, you know, because Ben, the screenwriter, you know, goes to Vegas to drink himself to death and he dies in the end. His fear was, John O'Brien said, that they were going to pretty womanize the ending. Yeah. And never forgot yeah. that. And so he was someone who won the the lottery as a novelist because... Yeah. Mike Figgis, Mike Figgis was a writer-director. And Mike Figgis did the music, wrote a great script, directed the out of it, nominated for an Academy Award. All the actors, you know. I mean, it was, um, well, the book was amazing. And uh, it's probably my favorite novel. The movie was transcendent. And it was really just the, you know, the, the source material for figures to make the film of his life. So, uh let's let's pray to the movie gods that you and I should be so lucky. <laughs>
0: I'll keep my fingers crossed at least.
1: <laughs> but, I,
0: but it would be an irony if either of our books were made into movies because there's nothing I mean, I think mine is uh as, uh, I don't know, hostile a takeover
1: of the industry
0: <laughs> as there ever has been.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would agree that uh, uh, Take Fountain would... Uh, uh, the only movie that it's possibly like is Oliver Stone's Talk Radio with Eric Bogosian yeah. in the 90s. A little film he made yeah. about a talk radio show host and... Uh, uh, Eric Champlain, uh, Barry, Barry Champlain. And so if Oliver Stone can make a movie out of talk radio, you know, uh, I I won't, I'll be like your screenwriter. I'm waiting, waiting for the the text. Waiting for waiting waiting for Yeah. Waiting Waiting for it. Waiting for Waiting for the text.
0: Well, I sure appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Adam. Me Um, too. My, my listeners on this channel, I highly recommend the book. It's a uh, page Turner. It's a thoughtful, interesting, uh, um, quietly ominous book that deserves, uh, deserves a readership.
1: I like that dark and ominous. Yes. 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 Uh, well, yeah, I would, pretty, I, pretty, I, 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 I would tell you that, uh, uh, reading your book was, um, just a pleasure, which I don't really say too often about too many books and not just because uh, I appreciated the sentences but that you wrote a book that's as much about California as it was about Los Angeles and really uh, props to you for uh, winning me over so uh, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.